Welcome to the Movement Made Better podcast, powered by Stick Mobility. We are your hosts, Dennis Dunphy and Neil Valera. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Our guest today, a very good friend of the show, Chris Flores. Chris is, I met Chris about six years ago. Uh, he's a master instructor for Animal Flow, adjunct professor at Keene University, business owner. You've got Rooted Rehab, mentor. You have a men's mentoring group, amongst a list of other things that you're doing also. So we'll let you go ahead and fill in your bio a little bit to uh, let the listeners know who you are. Yeah, man. Uh, first off, thanks for having me. And uh, added to the list of things or titles, I would say the most important one now is a dad for the second time. So that is uh, by far the most important title I, I carry around with me nowadays. Congratulations. Right, congratulations, man. Nice. Thank you. Thank you very much. Another boy. So I got two two kings I got to raise now, which is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, my son was just born two weeks ago. So oh, I, got wow, a, I got a daughter and a yes. son. Look at you. You got you got both of them there. Both of them. Yeah. <laughs> are, you sleep, are you sleep deprived at all? To be honest with you, uh, knock on wood, I was just um, what's it, messaging with, uh, you guys know John Goodman does a lot of the online training and stuff, mm-hmm. and he was messaging me that he hates me because I told him, I think his son hasn't slept in like three years, they've been sleeping tired, <laughs> and I have my guy already, last night he only woke up twice, so oh, there you knock go. on wood, we're, we're on the right track right now. Oh, Perfect. fantastic. So for listeners, Chris is an ATC, so for people out there that may not know what that what that specifically is could you help define that for them please yeah for sure man um so an athletic trainer is someone who i would the best way to describe it for me is like you're in the realm or in between like the uh, first responders so let's say like ems emergency medical services or you're you're a mixture of that and a physical therapist because we actually are on the sidelines so while I was working in a high school setting, I'm on the sidelines when the athletes play. We're there before practice. We're taping athletes up. We're wrapping them up. We're doing some of their rehab. So we'll do stim. We'll do their ice, manual therapy if needed, exercise therapy, whatever they need. And then we're there throughout the entire course of practice or games, watching and make sure no one gets hurt. If someone gets hurt on the field, we're the first responders. We run out there and we assess the injury. We decide if the athlete can be treated by us or if they need further medical services. Uh, we'll contact the parents at the younger level. If they're in college or so, they'll talk to a team doc and they'll give them the information and then it goes on from there. So I always tell people we have, to me personally, the most unique perspective when it comes to all injury because we see the mechanism of injury. We see it actually happen and then we get to get the athlete all the way through back to performance on the field again. Um, so I think as we see the full spectrum, the whole gauntlet of injury happen to back to participation, where a lot of people, they'll see them in a clinic, you know, a week after the injuries happen or a day after it's happened. And by then, as you guys know, that the body's going to respond, right? So you get some swelling, you get all this other stuff. Like when I've seen ACL injuries or complete knee blowout, I get a pure Lachman's test. And the Lachman's test is basically you're taking the, the, the knee and you're driving the tip forward to see if there's any translation or anterior translation, meaning the ligament's like gone, right? So I get a true test there. Whereas two hours later, the hamstring may tighten up, everything starts to swell, you're not going to get a, a good positive test. So they'll need an MRI or something else. So we see things immediately. Like I've got stories from, you know, for anywhere from putting someone's shoulder back in to uh, a bowler spraining their thumb. Like we've seen all kinds of nonsense. Um, so we see all that. And then again, we get to do rehab and, and we're in the locker room, we're in the trenches, man. And uh, again, unique perspective. Not many people spend that long of a time with a team in the locker room. And at a high school, we had 
the one I was at, we had 29 varsity sports. So I oh, dealt wow. with every athlete from every realm and every injury you could imagine. That's fantastic. Wow, that's a re- really universal setting then, huh? Yeah, so- for sure. I mean, we see, again, when you're, when you're there, the, the whole process, and even sometimes with strength coaches, you know, we'll have conversations because it's interesting. They'll train the athlete in the weight room, but not many of them, unfortunately, get to see them actually play the sport. Because you may be stuck at the gym. Like, we're watching them actually play. Like, I'm watching the person go through motions. So, I get to see what, what you're doing in the weight room. Did it actually help or did it hurt that athlete? Because I've known, you know, if it's a kid, I've known him for maybe four or five years. I've seen their capability. And then when they went to you, strength coach A, they did worse on the field. And when they went to strength coach B, they did better. So, I get to have, you know, that conversation with parents or see whose systems actually work and who's just full of it and looks great in the weight room. And so that has obviously had a lot of benefit for you when you do your training and you're taking the kids or your clients through their training protocols then. Yeah, man, it gives me, again, a unique perspective on it. Um, But also kind of, it's like a cheat sheet because I see, I like so many kids, I watch them play. And then when they come in the weight room, I'm like, all right, here's what you're lacking. Some, maybe it's strength on your first step. Maybe it's your ability to rotate. Maybe it's shoulder extension. Maybe it's, you know, hip extension that you're lacking. So I get to see exactly what they're lacking. And then I'll work on that when I get them in the weight room, if I get them in the weight room. That's a whole other conversation of trying to convince parents that a kid needs to stretch rather than, than deadlift 800 pounds. Is there, a, is there a common thing that you see? So the kids that are actually, you know, getting worse from a strength coach, is there a common denominator that you see among the strength coaches that, that are making the kids perform worse? Um, full disclosure, uh, I am not currently hired by stick mobility, <laughs> but I will tell you most of them lack mobility. To be honest with you, a lot of these kids are strong as an ox. They can, they can squat 300 plus, they can hang clean deadlift, but they have no movement. Like just movements lacking. And I feel like that's the biggest thing I see is these kids, a lot of people want to train them to lift more heavier, bigger, faster, stronger in that mentality, which is not wrong. There's, there's, it's a good mentality, but it has a point of diminishing return. And so we're forcing these kids. There's no off season. There's no rest time. There's no actually playing as a kid. There's no free play. It's just structured, organized sports. And so we're drilling them to a point where they're strengthening and they're trying to do all this stuff. And it just hits a point where, you know, you shouldn't be seeing a stress fracture in the low back of a 15-year-old girl. But when you make her play nonstop, basketball, basketball, soccer, basketball, soccer, one practice to the next, and then throw her in the weight room and lift, and then all this other stuff, you're, the body's going to eventually say, hey, man, I'm out of here. Like, you know, you, you can't expect this much of me without rest and, and just time to myself. So I see that common denominator where there's no mobility because they're always under stress, some kind of extreme stress, whether it be winning the AAU game, whether it be winning on their traveling team, whether it be winning on their school team, winning in the weight room, because a lot of coaches now it's all about team. And let's let's put A versus B. This the amount of stress they're under and they have their bodies are just tensed up and they can't move. And so that's the common thing I see the kids can't move and they're overstressed. As a parent, what would you what would like be one of your biggest pieces of advice is advice to parents out there who are looking at getting their kids into a sport or the weight rooms, let's say? I would say do your, your research on the strength coach you decide to work with. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors. There's a lot of like former D1 athlete, former NFL, former NBA player, you know, running a strength program. And while I don't discredit these people, because obviously they've been through the trenches and they played, 
we all know that some of the best players are the worst coaches. And it's because they had some natural talent or natural ability. I think we see that if we saw the Last Dance documentary with, with Michael Jordan. We all know that not many players will have that mentality. They're not going to have that win at all cost mentality. So you think about Michael Jordan trying to train someone, he'd probably go nuts, you know, because he'd be like, why aren't you in the gym 24 hours a day like I was? So we see a lot of that where the parents blindly follow the name and they don't really check to see what the philosophy is on the coach you're working with, what their mindset is, what their approach is to their athlete. And something that a friend of mine, Frank Future, told me a long time ago is in fitness, one size fits all fits no one. And so when you have these programs that are just blanket, you know, speed program and just a blanket speed program, everyone does the same thing. Nine out of 10 times, it's not going to work for that specific kid. Are you seeing any kind of transition at all from the coaching perspective, at least some type of shift? It's very minimal. minimal. Yeah, I think it depends on it depends on the network of that coach, right? So a lot of coaches now are meeting other strength coaches who are now more open-minded to movement. I see a lot of people adapting some of the FRC principles. I see a lot of people using your your programs, the stick mobility. It's it's awesome. Like it's so funny when I first met you, you're like, I got the stick stick mobility. I'm like, all right, cool, bro. Like, yeah, we can have no (laughs) idea what it is, but you know, it sounds good. Right. And then all of a sudden I turn on TV now and I'm watching like NBA on the sidelines. Everyone's got a stick or MLB. And I'm like, dude, that's like, you know, Neil and Dennis, that's their company, man. This is awesome. So to see where you guys have come and to see the, the caliber of coaches that are adapting your techniques, I think it's huge, man. And again, we weren't seeing that 2009 2008 like you know we weren't seeing any of this stuff on the sidelines it was old school touch your toes and stretch and now we're seeing a lot more quote-unquote movement uh programs again yourself frc i've seen some a lot of people now do animal flow on the sidelines sometime in games so we're watching a movement quote i mean it sounds funny to say but a movement of movement where people are starting to, to understand that this needs to be done. I think a lot of it is a credit to the work you guys are doing and some of the other amazing coaches out there, like the Edo Portals of the world. I think all these people are really pushing stuff to the forefront. Yeah, well, like what you talked about with what seeing, uh, was it a tight end from uh, the Redskins? When he was yeah, doing, I can't remember his name now, but yeah, yeah he was doing he crab reaches. Crab reaches on the sideline. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. not oh, something uh, you would have been able to see. Jordan. Jordan Reed was it? Jordan Reed, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, he was, yeah. Yeah, so 20, 15 years ago, you would have never seen that on an NFL sideline. No. You would have just seen the bicycle. No. Get on the bike. <laughs> start pedaling. Yeah, you, you see the bicycle in here, suck it up, and maybe a needle, and that would be about it. So if someone is looking to go the route of the ATC, what is that? What would the steps be? I'm assuming there's a specific program they would need to go into. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the school has to have an accredited ATC program. I believe currently, um, and I'm not 100% sure if they've already fully transitioned, but now almost all athletic training programs are master's programs. So I had a bachelor's in athletic training. Uh, it was a four-year program at Kane University, and so I did that. But now it's going to be, I, I believe, a six-year, if I'm not oh, mistaken. Wow. That's going to be a master's level program, and that's where almost all the schools are going to have to transition. So I was actually fortunate enough um, from working at Kane to work with their program director, director and discuss some of the curriculum for the uh, master's program. But, uh, yeah, it, it, the craziest part about it, and I will tell people this, is the, for me anyway, a D3 school was the hands-on, like, by my junior year, we actually had our own team. So I was traveling, and part of me believes this was a setup to get me out of the program, but I was traveling with, like, the girls' volleyball team, 
And I was like, they're definitely like <laughs> trying to get me to get in trouble here. But um, <laughs> so you, so we travel with the team, you know, we're flying places with the team. Junior year, I had, I had volleyball and they had men's lacrosse. So again, you're traveling with them. Like I remember being on the sidelines in Buffalo, freezing cold with the team. And there, I was the only one there flying to California with the men's baseball team. That was another freaky event because one of our, our closing pitchers yawned in the hotel room and slice his hand open, his throwing hand. Oh, Here I am, a senior in college, and you know I'm on the phone with our uh, program head, like, I don't know if he needs stitches or not. Like, it was, a, it was a crazy, crazy experience. So the hours that you do in athletic training is probably the hardest, because you're there before practice starts, and you're there after practice is over to make sure everyone's good, if they need ice, if they need whatever um, rehab they need after practice. So the hours are very long. I'm, I will not sugarcoat it. It's not going to be easy hour-wise. But once you get the education, I'm telling you, man, nothing replaces the actual hands-on stuff that you get uh, as an athletic trainer. So is, is that typical at all colleges? Because uh, Dennis and I have talked about this a lot, but, you know, like you're learning, but you're getting your hands-on right away so that you really, mm-hmm. you know, ingrain it into your system. It's not as prevalent in D1. Most of the reason why is because, I mean, for being brutally honest, a D1 athlete is essentially a multi-million dollar commodity for the school. So yeah. they're not going to let some you know, kid in, in a program really do a lot of work. Maybe they'll tape ankles, give out water bottles, like you know, be with some of the teams. But when you get to that, that high level D1 level, there's not going to be much internship or actual hands-on. You may be there. You know, it's very similar to, I can tell you probably 50 dentists in the area. They're like, I'm the dentist for the Giants. No, you stood in the sidelines for a season. And now you're saying you're the dentist because you had an internship, you know? There's a lot of interns, but they don't actually get their hands dirty. And I think at the D3, D2 level, you actually get a lot more experience. This is, again, just what I've seen, but I'm sure other programs are very different. You know, every school has its own amount of uh, hands-on contact that the athletic trainers get with the the athletes. But like the actual test that you take to become an athletic trainer, that's the same across the board. Yes, Okay. Yeah, absolutely. That's a national test. So you have to take that it's from the BOC or the Board of Certification. Um, so you have to sit for that test and you have to pass that in order to be accredited. And in certain states, and I believe they're different in every state, for New Jersey where I am, uh, you have they have a license from the Board of Medical Examiners as well. So we have to go get fingerprinted and we have to do all that to be licensed to be able to practice in this state. Now, do you have to retest every so often or is that... No, you have to get... No, you got get if you let it lag for too long, you have to retest. But every I believe now it's two years. They had it every three years, and then they switched it. I believe it's every two years. You have to get a certain amount of continuing education credits. And even with that, now they've changed it because now you need certain credits. Some certain amount of credits have to be within concussions. So you have to go to seminars and conferences about concussions. Some of them is what they call EBP or it's like evidence-based stuff. So you have to go summon that as well. So they do a great job of making sure that whoever is an athletic trainer, if you stay, that you're extremely educated in all the new stuff coming out. Because as you guys know, in fitness, there's new stuff every week. There's a new technique or a new whatever. It's very similar in the athletic training world that we see. But again, we see both sides. So we'll see what physical therapy side is doing, medical side. And then we also get the fitness side of stuff from people like yourself or you know, Animal Flow or other athletic trainers who have gone into the fitness realm, which ironically, it's funny, most people don't know this, but Mike Boyle was an athletic trainer by trade. So he's an ATC as well. <laughs> One of the top, you know, strength coaches or whatever is actually an athletic trainer. 
not sure if he still practices, but I know um, he was an athletic trainer at one point. So yeah, there's a lot of education you constantly are getting to maintain your your uh, certification. So I think the 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 thing about the ATC is that nice. It's that specific job w- which has that nice blend between the clinical and, and the fit and the gym side. Technically speaking, I think it's a fantastic position. So for anybody out there that that wants to get into this world, I, I think you should just definitely jump in. I think it's going to be a fantastic field. Yeah, it is, man. It, it's a very rewarding field. I think the the draw that people. And the ATCs, usually they'll start the program because I teach at the, the beginning level. I teach a fitness spec of the athletic training program at Kane. And so people come in with the idea they're either going to go the route of physical therapy. So use ATC to get to PT. PA now is a big one. So physician's assistants, a lot of people want to go that route. Or they want to go strength coach route. So very few people want to continue on the ATC path, which is kind of interesting. But the education they get, especially in the, the beginning parts of the program, is so great that it just carries over. Like there's, you know, you're going to learn your anatomy and phys of what you need. You're going to learn how the body actually works in your biomechanics and kinesiology classes. And then you get to actually see that in action, man. Like, I, again, I can't explain how valuable it is to see an athlete get hurt, which sounds horrible. <laughs> like It sounds so bad to say, like, but it's so much value in it to watch an injury actually happen in front of your eyes. Like, to be able to look at something like I'll watch college games and be like, you'll see an injury happen. You're like, Oh, they tore this. And you know, because you've seen it a million times, you know, it's like textbook ACL or a textbook shoulder dislocation or yep. That person definitely concussed and you can just tell from your experience. So I think that there's so much value in that, uh, that most people overlook. So you came out of college, you, you had the ATC uh, background and then Mm -hmm. where did you go from there as far as transitioning? Did you go right into uh, taking an interest in the animal flow or the strength and conditioning side? Now, the animal flow thing was a total uh, total freak accident, to be honest with you. <laughs> but I had been doing, I had worked at a gym already. So I was actually working at Workout World. I got stories for days, but I actually worked with Mike the Situation from Jersey Shore. Oh, did you? Um, really? He worked in me at work, yeah, in, uh, in Freehold. So we worked in uh, Workout World together. That was, I believe, 2004 to 2006, I think. So I was already doing personal training. I had been personal training years before that in my mm-hmm. parents' basement I started. So I've been doing personal training. And then I just realized, to me, it didn't seem like it was an actual real career at the mm-hmm. time because fitness wasn't as big as it is now. So I was just like, I got to find something that's actually going to pay the bills. Because my parents were like, well, you got to go to college and do all these things. I saw athletic training in the manual I came and it looked cool. I was like, I walked into the athletic training room. And I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. I'm hanging around athletes. I see people taping ankles. I see people doing rehab. I'm like, this is kind of like exercise. So then I just signed up for the program and then became an athletic trainer. And so I got, I graduated in 2008, I believe. And then I got a job offer over the phone from a, a, one of the people I had mentored with. One of my mentors was like, hey, do you want a job? I got two positions. You can either go full-time at a high school for 40 grand a year plus benefits, or you can be my assistant for 16000 a year. And I was like, I'll be your assistant. Sounds cool. Because my idea was I was going to do personal training at Flow Fitness, which I eventually did start, mm-hmm. and work as an ATC. So because ATCs usually start working about after school hours. So I was like, morning, I'll be one hat, afternoon, I'll wear the other hat. And so that's how that all came about, just marrying those two professions together. And that's where Rudy Rehab was developed, is seeing the, the exercises you can actually do and benefit from fitness that you can use as rehab tools and train the whole body, not just the, the area that's injured. Because almost all my athletes came in with a, a knee or a hamstring and it was always coming from somewhere else. 
Mm-hmm. So we had to look at the body as a whole system and not just individual parts. And so that's where Rudy Rehab kind of came in. And the animal flow thing, again, at Freak Accent, a friend of mine from Puerto Rico was in town telling me she was taking the animal flow cert. I was like, all right, cool. Um, I'll go. And I talked to Doc Perry, who we both know. I called Perry up and I'm like, is this thing legit? And he's like, yeah, Mike's the real deal. Great search. You should definitely take it. And I just showed up and the rest is history with that. I went and attended. You were the instructor for my level one course in Seattle. That's where we first met. And yep. uh, just talking to you, the vibe, the energy, I just connected, totally dug what you were, how you delivered it, the, your teaching style, thought it was spot on. So I, I know as for me personally, as soon as I find somebody that has that proper energy, the good energy, and and their and their knowledge base is really good. Like I try to latch on and and really get a bond or a relationship with that person. So thank you very much for letting me develop that with you, brother. I appreciate that. Yeah, man, I, pre- I appreciate you. You know, it's kind of funny, like you know, to go from meeting you and it was I believe we were in Seattle. It was my first time yeah. in Seattle taking Animal Flow to having dinner in Indonesia together in Jakarta. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just funny how that you know all this stuff comes back around. It's really awesome, man. Yeah, yeah. So how was your process of becoming a master instructor for for Mike? Well, that was uh, that had to be a pretty long process, huh? Not at all. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no. So to be brutally honest, it really was um, just to take a step back. When I was in 2009, I became best friends with this woman, Denise, who worked for TRX. And at that time, TRX, she was still knocking on doors and no one really knew what it was in New York City. So when she would come to New York, we hit it off. We became like like one of those people, like similar to yourself. You meet someone, you're like, this person's awesome. And so every time she came to New York, I would just like help her out. So I was like, hey, do you need a ride? I'd drive you around, especially when you came to Jersey. I would be her chauffeur, basically and help her out. I didn't work for TRX. I didn't, you know, get any really benefit other than meeting a whole host of people, which that's how I met Perry and met a bunch of other people. So when Mike started doing Animal Flow, the same thing, like whenever he came to New York, New Jersey area, I'm like, hey, dude, you need help? Like, I'll come out and like help you with the cert or whatever. So it really started off as just a friendship. And I was like, yeah, I'll, you know, pick you up from the airport if you need or whatever you guys need. And he started me bringing me along to different certs. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, he has me demoing for the, the, the exercises. And at that time, I was posting, and they look horrendous. The videos are still up on YouTube if you want to watch them. It's me doing Animal Flow. I was horrible at the time at it. And I was just posting stuff, not because they paid me or anything. I was just like, that's what I was doing at the time was, you know, posting all my stuff on, on YouTube. And so they just took a liking to like, all right, this guy's actually posting. We don't even pay him. And he's willing to, you know, do all this work and help us promote. And so they had a, a contract with Equinox. And when that ran out, they were looking to start a master instructor team. And so Mike had asked around and different people had mentioned me, I believe probably like Perry and the rest of them were like, yeah, Chris is legit. Like, he knows Zinfo, you should bring him on board. And so I think he called me on like maybe a Thursday and then like three weeks later, I'm on a plane to Costa Rica for the first ever uh, master instructor retreat where they went like through the whole level one and how we're supposed to teach and everything. So it was like just one step to the next. So it was very organic. It wasn't forced. I didn't ask to be a master instructor. I didn't like beg and, you know, force the hand. It was a very organic relationship that built. Now it's a lot different <laughs> to become a master instructor because we were the first crew, right? It's myself, Cliff, Rich, um, Kathy. We were the first like original four. And then now it's more based on region, based on language, based on, you know, if we need someone, a recent one we just hired is from Russia. 
So oh. we needed someone in that area, you know, and if that spoke the language that was able to communicate that had a presence in the area already. So now it's more based on region. But at the time I did it, it was like they were just starting up a crew, man, and they just needed some people. Have you guys had to transition to, to online certifications? For animal flow yep i just i taught two and i have another one in august so yeah was, we've done fully virtual um workshops which is crazy because i'm teaching and like there's a guy on from japan there was a woman on from saudi arabia on my last one so you're teaching this workshop and you have no idea where these people are so it's actually been a lot of fun uh the hardest part though for anyone doing i'm thinking i don't know if you guys have done um some virtual ones i know you're still doing the live ones with the circles um to keep social distancing <laughs> but the hardest part is it becomes a like 12 hour monologue where you're literally just talking to the screen because they can't really respond because everyone's muted. The energy's different. It's much better when it's live and you get to feel the energy of the people and kind of feed off that. For the online, you're really feeding off your own energy for the whole 12 hours. Yeah, there is a significant difference. We did a course for Hong Kong and it was vastly different feel. Time difference was uh, a, real <laughs> ki- a real kicker. Starting at six, six in the evening and finishing up at about three a.m. You're like, oh, this is the night. This is the night shift. This is what it looks like when you work the mm-hmm. night shift, you know, on the manufacturing line, yeah. that kind of thing. But the the digital world is starting to open up for us in this industry, and I know you ju- you you're one of the first people to have jumped on it really quickly. So that was yeah, that was I, had to, I had to pivot. I had to pivot super fast with COVID. Um, I've always wanted to do online coaching, um, but it was just one of those things where I was very comfortable face-to-face, and I do well face-to-face. Um, so I think my personality doesn't translate as well virtually. But um, it's been fun, man. It's been cool, you know, seeing people in their basement and being able to train them and not have to travel as much is a, is a lot of fun as well, especially now with the kids. You know, Neil, you can attest to this. You don't want to you, – you miss that one moment. And it's like, you miss the world, you know? Like, I miss my son's actual first steps. I was on a trip. I think it was the one we went to when we were, um, when I met you out in Indonesia. Oh, I believe yeah. it was that trip. But, like, flying out, you know, I was in the airport, and I get a text, like, a video of him taking his first steps, you know? Like, you just can't get that time back. Yeah, um, yeah. So the ability to not have to travel as much is super important. Well, and it's funny because we talked about, you mentioned Mike Boyle a little bit earlier, and, and Mike said the same thing. I've chatted with him, and he's all like, look, I got I got over the traveling thing. Like, I'm done with it. Like, it's, <laughs> you know, like, I want to be home. There's certain things that I want to experience, and being on the road, I just can't do that. So, yeah, I think yeah. Uh, we, we all, we especially with the kids, you guys. Yeah, want to that's tough, that. man. It's tough to travel with two kids. Plus, you know, it just puts it puts a lot of extra stress on your wife too. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on the situation, if there's you know babysitting or whatnot. Yeah, yeah, we're so. fortunate that her parents live close. I mean, my parents live in Florida, so that's a little bit of a hike. But yeah, it is tough, man. And you don't want to put that burden on them. And then the other thing is, I know for you guys, if you if you were to accept every offer to teach places, you can book yourself every single weekend. You know, so you got to be cautious that you're not booking consecutive weekends because then it's like you're always away on the weekend. So it's like spacing out and Animal Flow does a phenomenal job of asking us if we're okay with certain dates before they book things. So like it's amazing, to, you know, to sit down and be like, nope, I have my cousin's birthday on this weekend. Can't do it. Uh, that weekend I have, you know what I mean? And they really do a good job of, of tailoring it around our schedule. Um, and that's one of the beauties of having a good team. If you have a good team of people you trust, anybody in that team to pick up the slack and, and do the workshop 
so other people can't do. How long have you been uh, teaching at Keene University for? Has that been a has that been a long time going doing that? I'm going on seven years this this spring. Uh, wow. Well, this September. Sorry, my seventh year teaching there. Like I think one of the things that we don't really think about a lot. We, a lot of us complain a lot about our jobs, but I don't think enough of us really take the time to think about what we really enjoy about what we do. And so as a yeah. professor, what is one of the things that you really enjoy about doing that? The freedom of it. Because again, working at the high school and then, and then teaching at the college, at the high school, there's a, a very strict curriculum. There's only so much time you can really spend with the kids and so much you can actually say because these kids will run back and be like hey mom you know teacher said this and then the parent comes in it's a it's a whole debacle uh with that so you have to be really cautious you're almost in the high school setting you're you're very censored when i get to college it's not that i'm I'm dropping f-bombs or nothing like that but i take the content and i take it to their life and i tell the kids like my first class and every single class i start off the same way when i have my freshman class i'm like no one cares about you anymore. Like no one literally cares if you fail or not. It's a business. This is literally a business. If you fail because this class is a prerequisite, you will have to take it again and I will still have my job. So my money's guaranteed whether you pass or not. So it's up to you to, you know, study, do the things you have to do to pass this course because now it's a business. Now people are charging you for your time. So if I'm canceling classes, you better show up in my house and say, hey, I want my $50 worth. Because I told them, if you go to McDonald's and you order a number two, and you don't get your drink, you're going to be furious, right? But as soon as a college professor cancels class, kids are like, yay, they canceled class. Hell no. You're paying, <laughs> you know, whatever it costs the credit, you're paying for that course. So you better get that information out of it. So I always start off, and, I, and it's cool because, you know, we do evals at the, end of, uh, at the end of the semester. And without fail, all the kids write an eval, not all the kids, but for the large majority of them, they'll write an eval, like learned a lot more about life than I thought I would, right? Because it's, you can take fitness and incorporate and fuse life lessons because that's what's going to stick with these kids for the future. Everybody's going to learn to do a bicep curl. Anybody can learn how to squat. Anybody can learn where your, your biceps are or your rectus femoris or femoris, whatever you want to say. Like all this stuff is, it's in books, Mm -hmm. But the life experience, you, you only get that from that person teaching. And I think that that's what I like to infuse in the college setting. And I think that's what translates the most for me and, and allows that freedom in college versus the high school setting. And that you've transitioned into your philosophy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's been a lot of fun, man. <laughs> so for people that don't know what that is, uh, Chris uh, posts his... Uh, on a, every day, you've got something that you're posting as far as uh, little tidbits and nuggets of wisdom or different right. perspectives. Yeah, man. That whole philosophy thing came about with um, uh, Alicia Smith, actually, from Australia. She's one of our animal flow and uh, mass instructors. And we were, I believe, it was one of the Costa Rica trips. And we're by the pool. And I'm talking to her about the presentation I had coming up. And she was like, when are you going to do your own thing? And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, you, you have these things you always talk about. When are you going to have your own thing that, that's you being able to talk about that stuff? And I'm like, that's a good idea. So that's how the whole philosophy thing started, just dropping tidbits of knowledge or something that happened in my day where I saw a lesson that can be learned and posting that out there. And it hasn't done much for me. It's not something I get paid off of, but it really does help when you get that inbox. I'm sure you guys have gotten it for your stuff. Like you get that inbox where someone's like, oh, my shoulder is killing me. And then I did this move from stick mobility. And now I feel great. And I'm able to lift my kids over my head. And you get those moments where people thank you for something that you had no idea you were helping them. 
that's really what you do it for. I know it sounds kind of cheesy, but I put those up there and every once in a while I get an inbox of some like, some powerful, heavy stuff, man. And I'm like, all right, gotta, I'm on the right track. I don't know where it's going. You know, it's kind of a runaway train. It's kind of going, I'm riding it and I'm just riding until the wheels fall off, man. I'm having a good time. So did that, uh, I know you have a, you're, you're writing a book right now, right? Did that inspire yeah. you to write a book? Yeah, actually the, the birth of my first son inspired the book. Um, the premise of the book, it's 18 life principles. Okay. Uh, similar to like a 10 commandments. Right. And that whole thing came about cause like legacy. Like I feel like my dad told me certain things. My grandfather said things to me. My mom say, would say things and they would say these phrases and these things, but it was never written down. Right. It wasn't a place where I can look at it. And when you start learning about mindset and mindset coaching, it's very important to have these things visually present so you can see it and you can almost like reinstills it in your brain every time you look at it. So I came up, me and my girl and our families came up with these 18 like life lessons. Like you have to, like one of them is super simple, like treat people the way you want to be treated. Super simple stuff, right? But it's actually on a poster board in both my son's rooms. So it's like, as they get older, they'll look at these things. And so like when you leave the house, like hopefully that stuff, that narrative is running through your brain. Like, all right, my, you know, my dad said, treat people the way I want to be treated. My mom said this, like, I'm going to treat another human being with respect because that's the respect I want back. So it's 18 things. Again, we wrote them out. One of them is movement equals life, and right? It's like how important movement is in life as a baby you move. You know, the only time we stop or flatlines when we're dead. So continue to move, and hopefully that instills in them how important exercise is and movement coaching and movement training is. So it's just these simple things for them to live by, and that's the premise of the book. I'm laying out all 18 and why they're so important. And the book is going to be for the public, but most importantly, like when they turn old enough, it's going to be like, here's our family legacy. Here's the thing you need to follow. So it's going to be almost like a family Bible, I guess, if you look at it in a religious sense. I love it, man. Speaking of legacy, the fedora, I mean, that's one of the things that your, dad <laughs> your grandfather, your dad passed on to you, brother, the fedora. Oh, you can see it here. Here's the fedora collection. I don't know if you guys can see that. Oh, yeah, oh damn, the first there time. we go. Yes, yes. Look at yeah, that. It's the, real, it's the real deal, man. I don't make this stuff up. <laughs> Anytime you do an interview, you got to wear it. Yeah, usually sometimes I wear, you know, for podcasts a little off. But yeah, when I do presentations, you know, especially when I talk about philosophy or legacy, I always got to have the fedora because that's it's an important part of my family legacy and our family history. Yeah, it's just that unique thing that resonates and it's kind of like what a call sign. It's your thing. It's your gig. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. It's become that in, um, in recent years. Yeah, for sure. And so next time you're, and I sent you that picture. Where was that? Yeah. Shit, was that? Oh, Singapore. Yes. $5. Yeah, yeah, $5 for yeah. fedoras. Cheap as hell. What, what does a fedora typically cost? I mean, it depends where you get them. I actually, it's funny. We were doing, uh, Mike was teaching level two. And when we were in uh, Croatia, we had bought some. And so I was wearing the one from our trip we took. But generally, they'll be about like 15 bucks. But you can anywhere from 15 to like high-end ones are like $95. So a crazy range. Um, I don't really go for high-end ones. I'm not a fedora snob. I just, I like having one from different trips in different areas. And each one kind of has a story behind it. Yeah, I, uh, my head, my head's too fat to wear a fedora. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I could pull it off. I don't think I could make it look cool enough. <laughs> Neil, you could definitely pull off. Yeah, you can totally do it. Yeah, you, you got. You yeah. can totally pull it off. Yeah, man, I put a fedora on, and you're like, holy <laughs> shit, what the hell is that? Yeah, no, I, I, I think like, I think like odd job from Double Seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's this little thing just sitting on my head. You're like, oh, dude, they don't they don't make a fedora big enough for your fat head. It doesn't happen. You got you got to get custom ones, man. <laughs> yeah, I do. Yes, uh, I'll have to get a custom. You one. ever play uh, Goldeneye a long no, time ago? No, no. no okay. Oh, actually, okay. was that on uh, 
64. Yeah. Wow. Anyways, look, look up a character named Oddjob. And uh, okay, that's Dennis with a fedora with a (laughs) big fat head with a tiny little hat on. See, that's when I stopped playing video games. When Odd Job came out, no, too many damn buttons. (laughs) I was all like, like, man, they can't put me in here. I was like, what are all these buttons for? And my my brain was all like, (laughs) you're all good with just A and B. That's all you need is A and B. And then A, B, C, and all of a sudden. And then as soon as they started adding adding these triggers and side buttons on top, I'm like, Okay. I was like, I'm done with this. And now video games, I'm excited. Video games are now coming back to where it's just censored. I mean, wow. Well, all right. Yeah. Cause now it's, there's going to be platforms oh, where you just yeah. stand and you physically do everything like the Oculus. Now put the wow. Oculus on and you actually are doing everything. See, and that's cool in a movement aspect too. You know, you get, there you, you, get go. Kids, you get kids to move around or adults too. I mean, I think the I think the average age of a video game player is in the mid thirties. Is it that high? Yeah, really. Yeah, man. So yeah. it's our, it, you know, it's my generation. Oh yeah, yeah. That plays all the video games. That's that's why there's so many single women out there, man. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, you're I'm, probably not wrong. <laughs> Dude, man, they search for someone freaking. If you can learn to mow the lawn and take care of a house, you, you'll have your pick of the litter. Right? Some of you guys out here sit around all day long. Well, you've got colleges giving away scholarships for EF. Oh, oh really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. Know it's, a it's like a multi-million dollar business. There was a documentary I saw. These kids were living in houses, and they were making a million plus each kid for Dang. winning these tournaments. And they're like they're playing video games. They're like 19, 20 years of age. Yeah. It'd, be, it'd yeah. be interesting if they had an athletic trainer on board for that team. For, I wouldn't be surprised. There's athletic <laughs> trainers for X Games. For, yeah. You can have injuries. like tendonitis in your thumbs. Right. Well, yeah. because I know Northwestern was one of the first schools to actually create a stadium. No way. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And wow. then when I, when I realized Northwestern did it, I went, oh, this shit's getting serious. Yeah. Like it's not yeah. – it's not your local community it's real, college. Man. It's real. Like this is a, like yeah. a high profile university. But the crazy thing is these guys treat it like a regular job too. I mean, they're waking up at 6 a.m. to start playing and they don't put the joystick down to midnight and they're putting in hours just like a great athlete would for any sport, you know? So these guys are really putting the work in, but I can't imagine what that does to your body for sitting 10 hours a day, you know, staring at a screen all day. It must destroy them physically anyway well i think the documentary i think we watched the same one and on that one a lot of the kids were saying they're retired by the time they're 25 26 like they're retired so to speak they're just burnt out huh? just kind of burnt out so i don't know how that works but i mean and they go through they have coaches they 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 have strategies they have meetings Mm -hmm. like it's pretty intense it's a sport like every other sport man it is. So so now we get into the thing of, are they really athletes? <laughs> I yeah, know. I mean, it all depends. It, that's, a, that's a tough one because people argue, you know, what it means to be an athlete and the physical contributions of it and everything else. But if you're putting the time in practicing like everyone else and putting the work in, I mean, I guess you would say you're a professional unless it's necessarily a sport, but they are competing, right? And there are championships yeah. and there's there's tournaments and everything else, so... Whatever your definition of athlete is, I mean, you can argue that they are athletes. Um, it wouldn't be my definition, but I guess there are people out there who would say these are definitely athletes. I think when I first started looking into it was when I first saw one of the first articles where 
one of the top people were saying, I'm an athlete. Then that was a few years back. And I was like, like hey, pump the brakes there. And so right. that's, that's kind of when I started looking into the whole thing of, all right, let's, if this guy wants to be called an athlete, what is he doing that I would right. then say, okay, you're an yeah. athlete. Right? I mean, you have, you've got a strategy, you've got the whole mental side of things. It's competition. Mm-hmm. So you're feeling the pressure, right. but you, you know, you call it a competition, I'd say. It's a competition, but I don't know. Yeah. There's no there's no movement involved, so it's hard to make it uh, athletics, right? Right. Because, I mean, no one's calling Joey Chestnut an athlete. Let's put that like he's eating right, food, right? right? <laughs> and no one's calling him an athlete. So, but and he has to train and he has to put hours does, in yeah. to, to, to expand his stomach and, and critique his technique of how he eats it and does he sog the bread? Does he, you know, all that stuff right. is, so I guess, man, it's, it's up in the air nowadays. It's the free for all for athletes. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in, I think the one thing about esports that it really amazed me was the first time, uh, when I realized how popular it was, right. I, I just had no idea that it was that big a deal. And here in San Jose, they hosted a few years back, they hosted one of the, I don't, forget, I don't even know the game. They hosted a finals. HP Pavilion right. sold out in under a half hour. Wow. Right. And I was like, yeah. are you kidding me? Like they sold tickets to this and they were gone in a half hour. So it's huge, man. I, I can't even imagine what goes into the bandwidth in those arenas, what they have to have tech wise in place. Like what if it just shuts down? I mean, <laughs> the, the whole event, I guess, is shut down if the, the computer crashes. Like it's, right. it's got to be a lot of moving parts, man. So, yeah, it's been interesting to see the evolution of some things, especially with esports and how it's gone. And I think once we start to see more technology coming around, I'm going to get back into playing video games. I know that. Yeah, if they have sensors on your whole body, that'd be cool. You got to come up with a mini stick for the fingers. It's like a pen, and it can do finger stretches (laughs) to get finger mobility in there. Well, you could actually, well, if that's the case, you could kind of translate that, then use the technology as far as movement-wise, assessing movements from a three-dimensional standpoint, mm-hmm. if you've got yeah. all these sensors around, right? So it could, in theory, really help us in the fitness industry. Yeah, actually, a friend of mine, Veronica Dilzer, sent me something. There's this new app, and I can't remember for the life of me what the name of it is, but essentially, like, the people are doing exercise and showing the joint angle on each rep. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it, it was numbers flickering, so it was like looking at the, you know, what the exact number of the angle was, which is, again, pretty fascinating stuff that people start using that to track, you know, if I'm watching a client and I'm doing online coaching, I can be able to assess their movement based on the, the degree of the angle they're squatting at or whatever they're doing a the movement in. For me, it would be too much information. I feel like we're, we're bombarded with so much info that we lose the art of it. Um, so for me, it would be hard. I know for what you do, Dennis, I've seen your sessions. Like Something like that would be a little difficult because we're, art- we're artists when we do our thing. It's very much like we can, we can adapt on the fly and do some super creative thing. And then five minutes later, I'm like, I forgot what I did <laughs> in that session. But just made that thing up, right? But I think for the trainers of the future, it's going to be interesting so what you're, to your point. Like if there's a lot of technology tech involved, where does the skill set of the practitioner diminish? Because when given too many tools, now all of a sudden you're just a trainer with all the tools and none of the actual in- intuition and ability to do it without the tools. So it'd be very interesting to see how that critiques or changes the landscape of our profession. And then you start to overanalyze too. You know, you start yep, getting yeah. into the, okay, 87 degrees here, 44 <laughs> degrees here. 
but everyone's nice. squat, everyone's deadlift, you know, it's going to be just a little bit different. So do you see a lack of improvisational skills and trainers or coaches? Yeah, hundred percent. I see a lot of it. And in my opinion, working in education, it's not due to the person's lack of creativity. It's due to education because we teach kids to not fail. We teach them that you have to pass this test memorize this thing and everything's very linear and so when they get into training they're very linear with their stuff too they're like well nasm said i need to have this movement before this movement and this coach said i need to do this or even you know uh, which i think is a beautiful program but even like now these stuff with functional patterns like everything's very structured and very linear with stuff and saying you have to do it this way or else and a lot of programs are like that and that's what i loved about animal flows like we're just moving, bro. Like it's very laid back and it's very, you know, open to interpretation. It's not saying you have to do things in this pattern, the way we say things are supposed to be done. Um, because again, I don't think every human moves exactly the same or our joints are different. Our genetics are different. So much is different from each person. So I see a lot of lack in creativity and intuition, but I think it's because they are never allowed to be creative. Like I can't tell you how many times I said, I want to do my class. I'll give them each a tool. And I'll say, make up three new exercises you've never seen before. And they'll look at me like, how am I supposed to? Like, and they'll, you'll see them do push-ups with a minivan around their wrist. And I'm like, I've seen a push-up before, man. <laughs> like, be more creative. Like, let's see something else. And they just look at you like a deer in headlights. No one's ever taught them that they're valuable, that their ideas matter, that their creativity matters. Everyone said, do it my way or else. And now someone's saying, let me see what you got. Like, let me see how good you can be. And I want to learn from you. And I think when, when you start doing that, I think that's why it's lacking. And hopefully kids are learning how valuable their ideas are. And I think we're seeing that now, even with the Black Lives Matter movement, all the stuff going on in our culture. We're seeing how the young really have a huge impact and their ideas are starting to matter a lot more. So it's going to be a shift. I, I assume there's going to be coming soon. It's almost like being a jazz musician mm. versus a classically trained musician. A great analogy, yeah. Right? Um, I noticed that when I went and saw Billy Joel and Elton John in concert. To me, I always was like, that's one of, I, that was one of my dream concerts. And when I finally got to see them, I saw the clear delineation in their styles, where mm -hmm. Elton, is, Elton is very set. He knows what songs he's going to do and in what order. And Billy Joel is completely ad lib. <laughs> so Billy, in fact, was actually taking requests from the crowd. Like, what song do you want? And right. somebody would yell out a song and then just he starts playing it. And so it was interesting to see that ability. And I think a lot of trainers, they, they, they are, they don't have that ability to just improvise on the spur of the moment. And I think maybe is it because they're just, they just don't know that it's a, they can do it that or the, yeah, man. The other thing I think that has to do with that is as a practitioner, they don't have the experience. They haven't put the work in or the time in to, to really master their craft, you know, with social media, if you, if you have a decent enough physique, like if Neil just took his shirt off every single, every single workout and just posted, he'd probably get 10,000 more extra followers just because his physique is so good. Right. So I think we, we see that a lot in, in fitness and they don't put the time to put the work in. And similar to where your point, I noticed that when I, one of my favorite people of all time, but definitely comedians is Dave Chappelle. And he can just riff for hours because the content is him. Like he's literally just being himself and he's so good at his craft that he can just do it on the fly. Like you can give him that Avion bottle and he can probably riff on that for 15 minutes. And you're like, it's the most hilarious thing you've ever heard. Versus like a Jerry Seinfeld, who's also a great practitioner, but he, you know, he's so lineated with his content 
it's like he, he makes sure he maps it out and he has delivery, everything set. So again, you see the, doesn't, it's not neither one's good or bad. It's just you see the difference between the two. Yeah, because I just watched Dave's last special that he just did from his home what in Ohio. That was really Oh, that good. was insane, man. It was insane. 846. Yeah. yeah. That, that was, was really good. Yeah. Really, really good. You touched on the Black Lives Matter a little bit, and I know you do a men's mentoring group. And, right. I, and I think that's one of the things that I really love that you've set up is it's okay for guys to just sit around and talk about things other than sports, other than girls and, and things. It's like when guys get together, that's all we generally talk about is the same stuff. And so your right, mentoring right. group is something completely different. Yeah. So that started when, again, it was ironically my first son was being born. Everyone's like, Oh, when you have a kid, you're going to lose all your friends and all, all this stuff. And a lot of emotions were going through. And again, Neil, you can attest to this when you have your firstborn, you're like freaking out. It's like, this complete chaos of like, what, what's this going to be like? Like, how am I supposed to be a parent? What am I going to do? Like all these ideas. And so I got this idea one day where it's just saw like I had friends in different boxes, right? Like I had the friends I go partying with. I had the friends that, you know, you have a serious talk with. And so I kind of was looking around the people I was hanging around with and like, who are the six people that I really want to like spend time with and actually introduce them to each other? Cause some of them didn't know each other. And so I just send a, a message out to a couple guys. I'm like, hey, would you be down to meet up at my house for this group? And everyone showed up not knowing what the heck it was. And I didn't even really know what it was at the time. And I was like, you know, I just put content and information out there. And we were talking about goal setting and things like that. And then we just started setting up every month the same group would meet. And it got to the point where now, you know, we've watched one guy go through a bad breakup with, a, with someone else and find someone else. But he went into the dumps. We watch other people, you know, get divorced or have a kid and just all this stuff has happened. And having that once a month to be able to just let that out, like we start each meeting off, like does someone have anything they want to get off their chest? And just allowing that space to be vulnerable. Because again, as men in society, we don't have that vulnerability. We want to be tough all the time and we have to put this facade up that everything's always all right. Nothing's bothering us. The only time, you know, something bothers, we get mad and get angry and want to fight. And then it's like, then by that time, it's too late. Whatever was eating you up has already taken over. So having this group to be able to have these discussions with, and we're going on, we just passed a two-year mark a couple months ago, and we're still going strong, man. It's the same six guys, and we still with that one group, and I've, I've mentored other people to start their own groups because one of the things that happens is a lot of people want big, big groups. 150 guys come to a weekend, charge money. We don't charge any money. Same six dudes. I pull out some bourbon, have a couple beers maybe, uh, you know, and we have, sometimes we have a fire pit and it's just a good time, man. And just, again, being able to speak and discuss and let things off your chest, it's a huge, huge weight off your shoulders. Uh, and being able to do that once a month is, is just awesome for me. Yeah. Cause I think, especially in what we do, I think our industry more than a lot of others, that machismo and that ego is really, really glorified. So yeah, I heard this, um, this one quote, not to cut you off from my, no. I believe it was Malcolm X. But he said, peacocks strut because they can't fly. I think that, that resonated with me because it's a lot, you know, you see that in fitness. It's a lot of people like bravado and ego. Look at me, I'm, I'm the next big thing. And that's one thing I've always liked about you two guys because even when I had my own stick thing I was doing, you guys are more interested than you were feeling it was like, oh, you're stealing our stuff or trying to combat us. Mm-hmm. It was a very open-minded approach to stuff. And every time we've, we've talked and spent time together, it's never like our product's the greatest in the world. It's like, we do our thing, we do our thing, and, and we like everyone else's thing, and we want to see how our thing can partner with yours, like the stuff you guys did with Dr. Emily and the barefoot training stuff. 
you know, the stuff you guys have, you know, talked to Perry about, like all these people you partner with. And it's like, we can just help you do the thing you like to do. Like, we're not about taking over and saying our product is it and needs to stop lifting or stop doing anything else. It's always like, whatever you're doing, let's see how stick mobility can help. And I think that approach is so rare in fitness because again, ego driven, everyone wants to be the top dog. It's like, let's just all just share the wealth. There's enough abundance out there for all of us. So what's the point of trying to chop each other's heads off? Well, people have a hard time putting numbers into context. You don't know how many people are in this world. Like we throw out a number, we throw out the number 7 billion plus, but people that have never taken the time to step back and realize how much 7 billion plus people are. I mean, it is fascinating when you just sit back and take a look at it. I mean, take a look at your area, for example, right? Manhattan, like, let's say you go across the river, you go, you go into Manhattan Mm-hmm. In that small area, there's over 8 million people living in that area, right? Yeah, you just a dollar a day. <laughs> right? You can have a thousand different coaches mm-hmm. and there's still going to be so many people that you will never train in your whole entire life, even if you had that opportunity and just in right. that area. Yeah, I think we were on social media the other day. Someone sent us a profile and they had... Someone in fitness and they had, I don't know, 5 million followers. I'm like, I'd, I'd never heard of them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's just, there's yeah. so much out there. I see it all the time though. It is kind of funny. It'd be like, you meet someone and, you know, sometimes they're not the brightest bulb uh, in, in the bunch. And then you're like, how does this person get 10 million followers? <laughs> you know, it's hilarious. Shirt off. <laughs> Shirt <laughs> off. That's, that's it. where it's at. <laughs> Shirt then, off. But we think somebody's really popular and really impactful and they have a ton of reach. And then you start talking to other coaches and they're like, never heard of the person. And you're right. just all like, Wow. How is this? How have you not been exposed to this person? So every time that happens, it just reinforces the idea and that that concept of very few of us, no matter how big we ever get, are well known across the board. Right. Even even top celebrities, and people think about oh, everybody would know who Michael Jordan is. No, there's a yeah. lot of places Michael could go to that he would just blend in. He would so? just, well, yeah. uh, I don't know. Six I six. Think man. That's rare for Michael Jordan, but. <laughs> At six seven uh, or whatever he is, but you know, I, to your point, it was interesting when my friend and we were talking about this. I think a little bit when we're in Indonesia, like with celebrities, you go to these other countries and Kim Kardashian, these people aren't even mentioned anywhere in their news. Like they don't care; they don't have the slightest idea who they are. But then you realize who the mega stars are from the U.S. But those are the people that translate over to other countries, and like you start seeing the weight of a LeBron James. Like his name rings bells almost everywhere. Like this dude is in you know all these asian countries love lebron as well and it's like wow he really has a reach far beyond what people really can can comprehend unless you've traveled and seen it you don't really understand that other celebrities that we think are popular no one in other countries have ever heard of in their life yeah i mean we we all like bollywood is a perfect example right bollywood is huge (laughs) and yeah i have no idea who the top bollywood actors and actresses are no they could walk right in front of me and I'd be like, well, okay. The only yeah. guy I would, I would recognize the guy who did a Michael Jackson thriller. I'm not sure if you saw that. No, I haven't seen that one. Oh God, that was hilarious. If you ever have a chance, YouTube that. It's the Bollywood like thriller. It's the funniest thing. 
Okay, we'll have to check that out. <laughs> but yeah, so that's the thing. I think and people were always nitpicking, like, yeah, you're stealing my stuff, stealing my stuff. But I, my, uh, our philosophy has always been we're stronger together and we can affect more people if we all work together, if we all help each other out. Of course, man. And, you know, when it comes to movement, any movement that's done right now has been done a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago. Nothing's really new. Like someone's been in that position before. Someone's lifted in that position before. It might seem novel right now, but it's been done. And that's what we were talking about by Animal Flow. That's one of the things that I enjoyed with uh, coaching with them is that we start off by saying we invent these moves. People have been crawling and doing this stuff for, for centuries. Like this is not one of the originators of this. And now we tell people, if someone tells you they created a thing, tell them that you invented breathing and that they have to stop tomorrow. Because again, we've been <laughs> doing this stuff forever. So you can't just put your name on something and then say that I'm the owner of this. There's certain nuances that you own because you put the, that content out there and everything else. Um, but the actual moves themselves, like to your point, it's, there's not many new things that we can say we've discovered. You're back open again in New Jersey, right? You guys are back allowed to open up your gym. Um, somewhat. Uh, I think because we're a small studio, we've kind of gone under the radar, but I don't think the major like 24-hour fitness or, or lifetime of those places are open yet. I'm not sure though, actually. Gotcha. So other than your book uh, that you're going to be coming out with, you got any future plans that uh, you're thinking about over the next year or so as far as developing? Um, no, not, not many new plans. I want to try to get the book out. Uh, I've been working with a friend to try and revamp a website to put all the content in one place because I feel like right now a lot of my stuff is just kind of all over the place. I'm looking forward to seeing what, what the Animal Flow is doing in the future. The company continues to grow. Um, so there's always new opportunities opening up and it's definitely something that I've grown to love and I've always enjoyed it but I have really grown, grown to love and respect everything that they're doing the community they built. The stuff with you guys, I mean, you guys have done some amazing work and I always love, you know, working with you guys and doing things. So maybe something in the future with that. Um, outside of that, man, I'm actually in, in school now. I'm doing online courses to get my master's in sports psychology. So that's kind of where I'm going more with the mindset stuff because I really do feel like the future of, of coaching and training is all in actually understanding the psychology of the athlete. And there's only so far I feel like we're limited the physical can go. It's like, what's the next frontier for me working in the forefront of sports? It's what's this person thinking and how can we help gear that thinking towards success rather than worrying about failure and things like that. So that's the next, I guess, frontier in the next four years or so. So possibly like, like a new niche, like a new job. But more, <laughs> yeah. Well, no, yeah. More of that mental fitness part. Yeah. Of I mean, it, you so kind of you have like the, the trifecta there. You have the, you've got the mental, you've got the strength and conditioning side and then you also have that rehab rehab side too so that's that that's, that's pretty that's awesome. the goal man one of my one of my models was with steve martin who once said be so good they can't ignore you so it was like if someone wants to try and pretend you can't do something it's like all right well when, when i when people want to debate with me over strength and conditioning stuff i'm like all right well here's the rehab stuff here's the injuries i actually saw on the sidelines so you can say whatever you want and watch this happen so when people have that debate it's always like you know, you have an upper hand and then on the rehab side, a lot of rehab people haven't done the straight side. So you kind of have that side. So now my thing is like, let's go to the next thing. So when someone wants to have a conversation, it's like you can always meet people where they're at, um, but you're so well-rounded that it's not like you're just a master of one thing. You kind of have an idea and you can step back. Um, Cause I feel like people when mastery is, it's an interesting thing because some people get so narrow focused and I feel like you can't see the picture when you're in the frame. 
So if you can take a step back and see everything, you can watch it all from afar and then you kind of have a better idea or understanding of what's going on. So that's always been kind of my goal with where I want my career to go. You know, the mental aspect I think is kind of missing from the fitness side of things too, because, you know, as an athlete to make it as a pro, I mean, all these guys are genetically gifted. They're physically gifted. Mm -hmm. They can all do things, but it's that 0.1% that have it upstairs that really, you know, make it far and are successful. Yeah. I mean, look at Kobe, like that mama mentality, like the guy was insane. Like, you know, he was a phenomenal athlete. He was a, a just a wonderful human being. But bigger than that, I feel like he just had this mindset where like, I'm going to mentally, mentally mess with you to the point where you definitely cannot beat me, no matter what you do, because he was so sound in his skill set. But it was that extra mental, that, again, that mama mentality that just took him over the edge. And he was able to tap into it whenever he felt like it. And that's what made him so dangerous, man. I know one of the things that you do a lot is you post a lot of little snippets from books that you that you read and things that you think are really pertinent for people to get, which I appreciate. Love that. If you only had two books oh. that you could have in your library, what would those books be? Oh, man. One, well, I will say one, I'm not a fan so much of the author anymore, but it was the first book that kind of changed my life. Um, and it was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It was by Robert Kiyosaki. And he talked about the difference between being an entrepreneur and being an employee. And it was the first time I ever saw it broken to his four quadrant theory. And it was the first time I ever saw that. And I think that to me lit a fire of like, why am I going to continue to go work for other people? Like, mm. you know, and just had this, it just changed my mindset. So I think it's an important book for young people to read because everyone thinks of going to college and getting a job, going to college, getting a job. Not many people, I think now it's changing more so than it did in 2008, 2007. But now I feel like kids are saying, well, do I need college? Or if I'm going to start my own business, being an entrepreneur, I can learn on the fly and get the education as I go along. Like now people are having that mentality. But I think that book really helped put it in perspective between his rich dad and his poor dad. Um, and the second book, it's again a tough one, but it's just a book that really resonated with me was uh, Relentless by Tim Grover. And it's about, you know, Jordan Kobe and, and just what it takes to be great mentally. And he talks about his different people and how, what it's like to be a closer and the people who put the work in and you know, at the end of the game, that's the person you're giving the ball to. And no one in the arena has a debate about who's touching that basketball last. You know, that person's shooting it, you know what they're going to do and you still can't stop it. And to me, that's just greatness. So like reading that book really puts in perspective what it takes to be a great athlete, but also just great in whatever you're going to do. Fantastic. Yeah, I need to check that book out. Relentless. Yeah. Relentless, yeah, Relentless by Tim Grover. And then Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That's good. Yeah, I'll have to check those out. Can you give the listeners your social media handles or where they can find you and get, and if, get the information? Yeah, sure. If you're still listening at this point, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, flow underscore fitness. So F-L-O underscore fitness. That's on Instagram. If you look me up on, on Facebook, it's Chris Flow F-L-O. Um, and flowfitnessbh.com is my website. It's it's going to be on the construction soon. Right now, it's kind of old school uh, Wix website. But I usually do most of my stuff on Instagram and Facebook, so check me out there. Right on, man. Well, thanks for being on, brother. We appreciate it, man. Great conversation. Guys, thank you so much. Yeah, we could talk for hours with you guys. It's always a pleasure to hang out and get to chat and, and catch up with you guys. Yeah, for definitely. And then uh, can't wait to have you on again sometime. So we'll have to uh, definitely set, Anytime, set the schedule aside and then uh, make sure we get you back on pretty soon. 
So sure. for everyone out there in listener land, thank you for joining us. We appreciate you guys as always. Uh, please be sure to subscribe if, you, if we're bringing you some content you, that you think is valuable. And until next time, peace and uh, be good to each other out there. 